When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Hello, I'm Philip Coggan, the Economist's Buttonwood columnist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, Callum Williams takes us through the Bank of England's Wizard New Wheeze. It's a way to get around the problem that banks face when interest rates get very low, very cheap funding, on the condition that they continue lending vigorously. We ask whether Silvio Berlusconi's once enormous business empire is on the wane. And now that's fallen apart as well, so it really doesn't look very good for that more important bit of its business either. And wall. Huh! What is it good for? And I said, we got to build a wall. And everybody said, oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. It would be a very expensive project, and it's two or three times more expensive than what Trump is saying in public. Now, on August the 4th, the Monetary Policy Committee of the Bank of England announced a stimulus that Bank of England Governor Mark Carney hopes will breathe life into the British economy. The MPC is determined that the stimulus the economy needs does not get diluted as it passes through the financial system. Here to explain what the stimulus will mean is our British economics correspondent, Callum Williams. Callum, first of all, they didn't just cut rates, did they? No, although they did cut rates from 0.5 to 0.25%. But in addition, they unveiled a package of further QE. That's buying gilts, buying uh, corporate bonds as well. And then uh, last but not least, uh, this thing called the term funding scheme, which has generated a lot of interest on the blogosphere. Yes. And what's so interesting about the TFS? Well, what's interesting about it is it's a way to get around the problem that banks face when interest rates get very low, because the spread in the margins between what banks pay savers and what they charge to borrowers, the risk is that it will get very tight. And this means that bank profitability is, is, is hit. So what the TFS tries to do is to give very cheap funding to banks on the condition that they continue lending vigorously. So banks can borrow at bank rate for the for the next few years. And this means hopefully that they will borrow at bank rate and they will sort of pass on that interest rate cut to borrowers. This sounds like a variant on the funding for lending scheme. How does it differ from that? It, it is similar in, in, in some ways. Some people have said it's not quite as harsh as the funding for lending scheme. The sort of penalties for not expanding lending are not as uh, severe as they were in 2012 when the funding for lending scheme came in. The motivation is also slightly different. The motivation back then was to kind of channel funding to specific sectors, specifically the small business sector from 2014. But the motivation here, as I say, is to ensure that the very low interest rates that we're now seeing are actually passed on to the economy. Now, the whole package was slightly controversial with those who campaigned for Brexit saying that the bank was panicking, that we didn't have enough data to show that the economy was slowing and that uh, even worse, that by making such a big move, they might actually undermine confidence. What's your view? Well, my view is that the bank, like all of us, have not really seen much official data on the on the economy. However, also like us, they are following more high frequency stuff. They were, in fact, a, a pioneer somewhat of this 
use of a range of indicators, including things like Google searches, which if used judiciously can be quite a useful indicator of what's going on in the economy. So I think they have probably reached the conclusion that things are actually not going that well. Bear in mind that a year ago, they had sort of ruled out the idea of cutting rates to 0.25%. So clearly, the situation has changed a bit. Banks are stronger and so on. But still, they obviously think this is quite a serious situation. And they also suggested that they might do more, didn't they? They did. You know, some people have suggested that the term funding scheme could theoretically be expanded such that banks could actually borrow potentially at negative rates. The Bank of England itself has kind of ruled this out, but, you know, they've ruled out things in the past and then changed their mind. So who knows? And there might be another rate cut to 0.1%. Yes, or possibly 0.05%. So there's certainly a possibility for that too. There are downsides to lower interest rates, aren't there? There's the effect on savers, there's the effect on pension funds. The effect on pension funds is not great. The deficits of pension funds go up. Uh, as they have done when interest rates are su- such a low level. Interesting also, you know, the Bank of England a year ago was talking a little bit about, or quite a lot about, the problem of household debt in the UK, which has fallen since the crisis quite substantially, but, you know, in the last six months it's levelled out and, and it's start, starting to rise. So there, there is a uh, worry among some people, though I don't think it's a fully justified worry quite yet, that the, uh, you know, the recovery is, is expected to be sustained by the, um, by the borrowing of, of households, which potentially could be a problem. So there's, there's, there's that too. Now, another criticism is that monetary policy, when we get to this level, isn't that effective. If you weren't going to borrow when the rate was 0.5%, will you really borrow when the rate's 0.25%? Absolutely. So um, do we need fiscal policy as well as monetary policy if the economy is really in trouble? Yes, I think that is our view on things. Carney has been quite explicit about this, saying that you know su- supply of credit is not a problem. It was a problem in 0809, but it, it really isn't now. You know, Small businesses can borrow at 3.5% on average, really low. So the problem is, of course, we have to wait until potentially October or even November for Philip Hammond to explicitly change Osborne's fiscal policies. And even if he does, how quick is fiscal policy relative to monetary policy to work? Uh, We're in favour of infrastructure spending. That's absolutely right. Infrastructure spending takes time to get going. Absolutely. And the Treasury will always say that there are no, uh, as they're called, shovel-ready projects to get spending on fast. So the sort of feed-through from saying we are going to do X, Y, or Z and spend money on roads and rail and whatever, water houses. and so houses, um, <laughs> won't be felt for um, a long while. So at the moment, uh, monetary policy has to do all the work. Callum Williams, thank you very much. And if you have any top thoughts on how to lift the economy from its post-referendum doldrums, we'd love to hear them. Find us on Twitter, at Economist Radio, and on email, radio at economist.com. Now, it's time to look at a flamboyant and controversial mogul who stood across the worlds of politics and business, making money and enemies in huge volume along the way. No. I'm not talking about Donald Trump, at least not yet. Because before the Donald, it was Silvio Berlusconi who could be relied on to dominate the headlines, especially since, as owner of many of Italy's major newspapers and media outlets, he could always write himself into them. However, it's been a difficult few years for the media magnate turned football club owner, turned politician, turned crooner, turned convict. Adam Roberts, our European business and finance correspondent, joins me now down the line. Adam. Are we seeing a fall in his fortunes? Well, yes, he's obviously had a bit of a fall already in the last few years. He's had his political troubles, his legal troubles, and and now I think we're seeing uh, a a build-up of corporate problems for him. Um, He's getting old. He's going to be 80 quite soon. He had quite a serious case of heart surgery just a couple of months ago. There were rumours that he was on the verge of dying. He really is in in a fading away (laughs) position at the moment, and I think he's preoccupied with trying to get succession, trying to sort out uh, who within his family might be able to take on his mantle. The big deal we saw was AC Milan being sold off to Chinese investors for more than $700 million. 
Is this more significant than if it had been any of his other businesses? Well, it's symbolic, I think. When we saw him take over AC Milan nearly, well, some 30 years ago, he, he really made the most of it. It was something that went very well for him. He used it to, to raise his profile and the success of the club, the football success of the club, was, was really quite remarkable and it paralleled his political rise. Uh, in more recent years, it's not done very well on the field. It's not done very well as a business. And his luck at the moment is that there are Chinese buyers flooding into, into both Italy and into the UK and elsewhere looking for football clubs to buy. So he's been trying to sell his club for several years and he's finally found a buyer. Yes, it reminds me a bit of the Japanese who bought film studios and the Rockefeller Centre in the US in the 1980s. One wonders whether buying some of these football clubs will be a great investment. Apart from his health, though, are there other signs on the corporate side pointing to a decline in Berlusconi's fortunes? Yes, I mean, the more significant part of his, his business, as you mentioned, is the media. It's the company called Media Set. And then within his company, Media Set, there's a part of it called Media Set Premium, which is the pay TV part. Uh, we saw this interesting, curious deal between Vivendi and Media Set Premium earlier in the year in what looked like a sort of rescue for that bit of Berlusconi's company. And now that's fallen apart as well. So it really doesn't look very good for that more important bit of his business either. So we know all about uh, Donald Trump's children. They were on display at the Republican conference. Um, What about Berlusconi's children? Are are they going to take over as the old man winds down? Well, that's the big question. So rather like Donald Trump's family, we've got a variety of, of children, some more capable, some less capable at running businesses. Generally, it would be best for Berlusconi's companies if if they got out of trying to manage anything. They're not really very good at it, but they want to be colourful. They want to be in the news. I think they want to get attention. None of them really stand out as a a model of a dynastic business family for Europe. I suspect the Berlusconi family as a business family won't be around for that much longer. It's so often the case, isn't it? Well, Adam Roberts, thank you very much. Thank you. So... Finally, Donald Trump is a man whose policy positions and priorities can seem to change with the weather. But there's one area where he's been remarkably consistent to the point of fixation. We are going to build a great border wall. We're going to build a wall. It's going to be built. And I said, we got to build a wall. And everybody said, oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. We will build a wall. We have to build a wall, folks. Build a wall. Build a wall. Wall, wall. Build a wall. Oh, we're going to build a wall, all right. That's right. He's made no secret of his desire to build a wall separating the US from Mexico as a physical barrier to illegal immigration. But how much would Trump's wall cost and who would benefit? A new report from Bernstein Research aims to answer those questions. So we sent US data journalist Wade Joe to call up Nick Timpson, one of the authors. Hi, Nick. Hello. So, first of all, what kind of price tag are we looking at for the wall? We found a, a huge range of estimates, the vast majority of which were comfortably higher than what Trump has, has talked about himself. Really, we're looking at at least $15 billion with the potential for you know, much, much more than that. Obviously, a very expensive project, and it's two or three times more expensive than what Trump is saying in public. So um, obviously, majority of the cost will be things like labor, but let's just look at sort of the materials costs for a second. Um, can you give me a breakdown of that? We're looking at, let's say, about $700 million worth of concrete. Within that, the component, the cement component is around $240 million, according to our analysis. And uh, what assumptions do you make about the dimensions of the wall? 
We looked at what Trump has been saying. His statements vary, but we sort of averaged them at about a 40-foot height, which is probably quite a bit higher than it needs to be. It's certainly higher than the Berlin Wall and the, the West Bank barrier, but he wants to make a statement, I think, and a 40-foot high wall is, is certainly going to do that. So we say 40 feet and 1,000 miles long. Below ground, we've put seven feet, so it's a sort of total above and below height, um, ground height of 47 feet. It might be um, surprising that it wouldn't prevent, let's say, people tunneling underneath, because if you're a, if you're a, a sophisticated tunnel, you can drill through a concrete wall no matter how deep it is. You know, if you're going to be able to drill through it. So it wouldn't be terribly hard to get around such a wall. Not at all. You can climb over as well. You know, you've got a 40 foot high wall. Um, all you need is a, a 41 foot high ladder. One of the most interesting things in your note is that the majority of sort of cement and concrete would have to be shipped quite locally. What kinds of companies do you think would stand to benefit from all this sort of influx of demand? It was very interesting. I mean, we found that by far the single company which stands to benefit the most is a company called Semex, which is a Mexican heavy building materials manufacturer, but with operations on both sides of the wall. The key question here, which we don't pretend to know the answer to, is you know, if, if this is a, a Trump project, is he going to be happy to use you know, for, for some of the contracts to go to Mexican suppliers? He's also suggesting that Mexico pay for the wall. You know, our logic is that if the Mexicans are going to pay for it, they're not going to want U.S. material supplies to benefit. Thank you so much, Nick. No worries. Cool. So there you have it. If Donald Trump gets his way, the firm that stands to benefit most will be a Mexican one. Wade, thank you very much. So that's it for this week's Money Talks. If you're interested in reading more about anything we've talked about, you can find all our finance, business and economics coverage at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 